this morning, I want to speak uh, a little bit about something that is, has been on my heart for about two weeks. The timing of the Lord's a funny thing, because this was stirring on me before really Kelsey closed her message last week, and as it landed, it was very much in dovetail with what the Lord had already put on my heart. It's one of the reasons why hearing from multiple voices on a Sunday morning is a good thing. The Lord speaks through multiple people. And when we were uh, doing our dream stream events, you know, we said, hey, themes are better than dreams. It's better to find the theme of what the Lord is saying than the individual specific word that can, can be uh, maybe a little tangential or a little off. You look for the themes. When it comes even to preaching, themes are better than sermons, the theme of what the Lord is saying to us as a whole, which is why in the last 11, series, uh, 11 sermons on that series in Ephesians, I think we heard from five different voices. If we ever get to the point where we have church merchandise, I just want shirts that say, the bridge, we hear voices. You know? I think that would kind of fit because we want to hear from one another and what the Lord is saying cumulatively. All that to say, what the theme that we came out of speaks to this message we're going to talk about this morning, and I want to go a little bit of an unusual direction in the way of a topical standalone message. I don't do this very often. I maybe do four or five a year that is not in a series or involves a greater passage of Scripture. And the reason is because when you do a topical message, you've got to make sure that you've got mass appeal. I don't want to speak to, you know, men between the ages of 30 and 32 years old who are left-handed and the rest of you are going, ah, what was that? I want to speak messages that, that fit the whole. So I don't do this very often. When I do, very often I'll take 20 minutes and just try and convince you that the message I'm about to preach applies to you. I'm not doing that this morning. I was getting ready to work on this, and I felt like the Lord said, those who struggle this will want help, not convincing that it's an issue. And so this morning, I am preaching to you as a man with a problem about that problem to people who have that problem. This one applies to all of us. This morning, I want to talk about the shame on us. The shame on us. Because of the brokenness in the world that we live in, an excessive amount of shame rests on people, believers and unbelievers. And you may be saying, Randy, have you watched the news? Have you seen what they're doing out there? Do you have an idea what's going on in culture? Some of you are thinking they have no shame. A little shame might be a good thing. I'm telling you, having experienced some measure of shame, I would not wish shame on anybody. I would wish conviction, but I wouldn't wish shame on anybody. And we're going to talk a little bit about the differences in those. The devil will pile shame on you for anything and everything. In fact, shaming the world is what his job is. And when we try and shame the world, we're actually partnering with the enemy. It is telling people they're not worthy of love or they're not worthy of belonging. Guilt and shame are very different. Guilt can be very private or internal. Guilt keeps us up at night. It eats at our conscience. And even when we are shown to be guilty, we feel very, very alone. It's one of the reasons Jesus comes to us as a friend. Because in our guilt, we feel like we're separated from everybody and we're by ourselves. And he comes to us as a friend to forgive us and relieve our guilt. But it, as much as guilt is private, 
Shame is social because it involves what we think others are thinking about us. It involves how we feel before other people and before the Lord. And even when Jesus cleanses us of our guilt, we often continue to struggle with shame. How many times have you talked to someone who you knew loved Jesus, but below the surface they would admit, I'm ashamed. I'm wearing this burden of shame. So when you come to God the Father and he declares you not guilty, the devil still stands there and whispers, shame on you. It is the will of God that you live in peace. It is the will of God that you live in righteousness, that you live in cooperation with others and with right relationship with others and them. It was the will of God that you live in appropriate repentance for what you have done. But it is not the will of God that you live under the condemnation of shame. Go to the original blueprint of how men lived before God. Man in his purest existence, in his most perfect relationship or perfect state with God the Father, unencumbered by any sin, lived without shame. In Genesis 2, it goes out of its way to explain that shame was not a part of life for Adam and Eve. It specifically says near the end of the passage, oh, and they have no shame. What a unique thing to point out. Of all the things that he could have said about them, I mean, he could have said they have no belly buttons. I'll just give you some time to let that soak in. You know, I mean, there were interesting things about Adam and Eve, but he said, oh, write this down. They have no shame. That is going to be so unique for the rest of history that these people live without shame because after these two, everybody's going to feel it. He does this because he knows it's going to change. And shame, in some form or fashion, will be the long-running battle of humans, believers and unbelievers. Some of you are thinking, now wait a minute. Everybody feels shame. It's what brings us to Jesus. Not exactly. In fact, there are a lot of people who live under great shame who have never met Jesus and may never know him. There are others who live under great shame who have served the Lord for years. We confuse shame with guilt. Guilt is the weight for what we have done. We can have guilt and not even recognize it as for what it is. The world is full of guilty people who manage to stuff it down so deep that it doesn't bother them, and they live with abandon to the things that they have done, but when they suddenly realize their guilt, they realize something's got to change. I've got to do something about this. And thankfully, the Lord has an amazing response to those who feel guilty and recognize it. Psalm 32, 3 through 5, reading out of the NIV for this passage. It says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away, though my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. What it doesn't say is the same guy probably went to church and everybody asked him how he was and he said, Fine goes on to say, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you did what? You forgave my, the guilt of my sin. To those that are guilty who stand before the Lord and say, this is how I am. He receives that and he removes guilt from them. 
We all know what it's like to be guilty. We all know what it's like to be guilty and know it. And we hopefully all know what it's like to be forgiven for the things that we're guilty of. For our purposes today, though, we've got to draw a line between the idea of guilt and shame. Guilt is the burden for what you have done. You might feel the weight of it now. You might have felt the weight of it back then. But once you unload it, that guilt is lifted off of you. Shame is the feeling that comes from the belief that because of things, you are not worthy to be loved. That because of what has happened in the past, now something is so flawed with you that you can't even stand before people or God because you're not worthy. You can be guilty and full of shame. You can be forgiven and still be full of shame. God reacts to shame and guilt differently. When he sees you as guilty, he recognizes you are guilty of an offense that must be covered by the blood of his son. When he sees you as full of shame, he sees you as a son or a daughter who doesn't believe they're a son or a daughter. And his heart's response to shame is very different. Just as repulsed as he is of sin, he is drawn to comfort us in our times of shame. Shame is the tragedy of seeing a situation through the perspective of anyone else others than God's. In his eyes, a forgiven person is not shameful. But in their own eyes, many people continue to struggle under shame. And shame affects us differently even than guilt did. It causes us to hide. When we're guilty and we know it, it demands movement. When you're guilty, you got two options. I either run to God or I run from God. My, my first uh, staff pastoring role, I remember my senior pastor telling me, watch people under pressure. They either run to God or they run like crazy away from Him. And it's true. When they're guilty, they move. Shame makes you feel stuck. You don't know whether you're supposed to step towards Him or step away from Him. It makes you stand there awkwardly, exposed, naked before Him, feeling like you're naked before others, going, I'm ashamed, but I don't know what to do. Shame makes you cower before God and everybody because you feel like you're not worthy of being loved. And so like Adam and Eve, when a shame comes on you, the immediate response, whether you are forgiven or not, is to cover yourselves and hide. For a believer, shame is response out of alignment with God's design. For an unbeliever, shame may reflect a hard truth, but God is wanting to call them into relationship to relieve them of that guilt and the shame. Now, shame comes on us for a variety of reasons. It really comes at us four different ways. If you've ever been felt like you've been punched from four different directions, shame can do that. First direction it comes on us from is comes from sin from our past. Every one of us has carried some element of sin and shame from our past. When Adam and Eve sinned, even while they tried to justify their sin before God and try and talk their way out of it, they experienced shame. Immediately in the next chapter, in chapter 3, they sinned by eating the forbidden fruit, and one of the ramifications of that sin was an overwhelming sense of shame on them. And Scripture says... They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves 
loincloths. They sewed fig leaves together because they had shame that they had previously not known, and it could be argued that the shame they felt had little to do with the sin that they had committed. You have to wonder if Adam ever went to therapy. We lived for a long time, like 900 plus years. Can you imagine Adam going to therapy? Therapist, tell me about your childhood. He's like, well, didn't really have a childhood. But then he recounts the story of the fall, and the therapist asks him, well, how did you feel? I felt ashamed. So what did you do? I made pants out of rhubarb leaves. You did what? I was ashamed and I had to cover myself. Shame manifests itself in strange behavior. How does shame for eating forbidden fruit manifest itself into a sudden aware of your nakedness? Because when you have done something wrong in the eyes of God, when you face it, along with legitimate guilt, comes this layer that says, I am not worthy for him to look on me and I've got to hide. I've got to cover myself. What God says about me is not true. Some of you have been forgiven for sin and you still wrestle with shame for that sin. It's this idea that what God says about you and forgiving you is not true and your shame is the inward manifestation of doubt that he's really not as good as he says he is. You're grateful to be forgiven, but you're pretty sure that if God could be allowed to see all of you, what a ridiculous thing to say, but if God would be allowed to see all of you, that he would not want to look on you. So people who live under shame pull back. They hide and they cover themselves because they feel they're inherently unlovable. That moves the heart of God. He's like, no, no, let me help you. I don't want to hurt you because of the feeling that you have. I want to help you. Genesis 3.21, the Lord made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. He's like, take off the rhubarb leaves. Here, let me kill some animals. The original sacrifice for what they have done, and he covers their shame with his sacrifice. While the story of Adam involves a tender moment of God covering them, and it points to the system of sacrifice to come, it doesn't negate the fact when humans feel shame, they hide themselves, even when God wants to walk with you in the cool of the day. There are times that shame is so bad for the sin of our past that we actually go back and begin to act out the very thing that caused us shame. Imagine a man who's lived a promiscuous life, and he repents, and he comes to Jesus, and he's forgiven. And later he falls in love with a woman. And they get married. And she loves him. But every day, because of the shame of his past, he asks himself, how could I have been so stupid? And he feels unlovable. He feels like nobody should even look at him. And he withdraws from her. And he withdraws from the Lord. He's been forgiven by God. He's been forgiven by her. He had full disclosure in front of her. Yet he keeps dwelling on the shame of his past. And eventually a crazy pattern emerges. He begins to recreate the life that gave him the shame to begin with. He returns to his sin, like Scripture says, like a dog to his vomit. You have seen this happen in the lives of friends. The overwhelming wave of shame outweighed the fact that they had been forgiven and they end up living the life that they were ashamed of. 
People who live in shame of sin, even after they're forgiven, often go back to it because that's what they're walking in agreement with. You either have to come into agreement with what God says about you, or you live under the agreement of the guilt and the sin and the shame. And if you live agreeing to that, you'll go back to it. Now, I am facing very quickly here a second wave of children who will need to learn how to drive. We could just stop right now and pray for me, okay? Like, it's just, it's challenging as a dad, isn't it, parents? I grew up in North Dakota. I'm just going to be very honest. Learning to drive in North Dakota was way, way easier. It's just way easier. You really had to work hard to hit somebody. I mean, there was just nobody there. Driving down 435, if you sneeze, you cause a five-car pileup. How many of you ever have to sneeze and you know you close your eyes and you're like petrified there for a minute? My nightmare is, and this has happened to me, is sneezing on that roundabout at 159th and Mission. I'm like, oh God, I'm going to go put you, and I'm oh, come out the other side. It's like, so I realized this was not my life as a child. Okay, growing up, I, that was never in North Dakota, you know, no cows, sneeze. Okay, you're fine. The other thing that was easy is we learned to drive in snow and ice. Because, you know, nine months of the year ish. I remember in driver's ed going across a parking lot and uh, Coach Brecky, who is the driver's ed coach. In the Midwest, all driver's ed coaches, all driver's ed teachers have to be called coach. I don't know why. But we're driving across a parking lot. I remember remember Dean, uh, Dean Brecky reaching down and grabbing the emergency brake and just yanking on it, pitching the car into a skid. And he would tell us in class, okay, when I pitch the car sideways, Look where you're wanting to go, not where the car is actually going. You know how counterintuitive that is? To actually look where you want to go instead of where you're going? But we learned that if you look where you wanted to go, kind of subconsciously, the car would follow your eyes. It worked. If you feel unworthy before the Lord, who declares you worthy, you will eventually manifest that unworthiness before him. You have got to look at what he says about you, not what you believe about yourself. And your spirit will come into alignment with his words rather than your fears. And you're like, but I'm going sideways in a driver's ed car. He's like, look where you want to go. Look who you want to be. Look what I'm saying about you, and you will begin to make the corrections to come into alignment with that. Nobody lives long in holiness when their mind is set on shame. It just doesn't work. Nobody lives long in holiness believing the lie that they're not worth being loved. Because if you're not really worth being loved, it's not even worth trying. This is why moms and dads, grandparents, hear me. There's a phrase, do not use. Never look at your kids and say, shame on you. I'm begging you, don't do it. Because it's not correction, it is a curse. It is a dark prophecy. You don't want shame on those kids. I'm a big fan of conviction. Let's deal with guilt, but let's not heap shame. The devil will do that on his own. Do not help him. Because when people receive that word of shame on you, it's like speaking a curse. And then they start to express that behavior. 
And then you wonder why your child acts that way. You piled it on him. Don't speak shame over them. Not all shame is sin-related, though. Some of it's not. We find ourselves unlovable and think others look at us that way for far more reasons than just our own sin. Sometimes it is because of our own failure. Now, nobody looks forward to failure in life. You know, nobody writes in the yearbook looking forward to fail. Nobody leaves more in the morning. Do you leave the, the house headed for the office? Headed off to fail, honey. You know, you might think you will, but nobody celebrates it, okay? But at some point, it's a part of all of our lives. We all try and do something, and it doesn't go like we thought we would. And sometimes it's so drastic that that failure piles shame on us. Some are quick to bounce back when they fail a test or they don't accomplish what they meant to. But other times, the failure gets to the core of who we are. Some of you have failed at things, and you can't move on because of the shame of the failure over your life. Now, Kelsey and I have a history of doing things maybe that we have never done or maybe weren't qualified for in the middle. But that never really stopped us. First time that we ever got a, a state license for an adoption agency, probably 14, 15 years ago, I remember sitting down with the state licensing agent and her talking to me for about 45 minutes and looking at my resume and getting so angry at me, she literally yelled at me. She yelled, you don't know what you're doing! Arguable. But I just knew that people dumber than us had done this. You know? And I knew, I thought we could do it, and we figured it out. So we've tried different things, and so most of them have worked, and a few things haven't. Thinking that way can be helpful, but it can be a noose around your neck if that confidence is what you are relying on so heavily that it gets knocked out of you. Some years ago, I tackled something I thought I was very well equipped for. Everybody else thought I was well equipped for it. The people who wanted me to do it thought I was well equipped for it. And it went great, until it didn't go great. And the reasons were complex and not really the fault of any one person. There's culpability to go around, but I realized that as it played out, there was one person who was particularly angry at me for what they perceived was failure. And they used this word that hit me up alongside the head like a two-by-four. In a moment, they said, Here's the problem. By the way, was anybody ever just gets ready to say, here's the problem? Just get your dukes up. Here it comes. I failed to get my dukes up. And here's the problem. He goes, you're incompetent. That was my reaction, yes. For the YouTubers, someone gasped. I did not pay them. They just gasped. No, that was, I was, I, I was incompetent. I've been wrong. I've done things dumb. I've never really thought about being incompetent. Guys, just legit, I heard that word in my sleep. That got so deep in my spirit. Every time I thought of that episode, I heard that word incompetent. Every time I thought about doing something else, I heard that word incompetent. I started to, I fixated on it to the point where I started to endorse that message. I started to come into agreement with that word because if you looked at my failure, an argument could have been made that I was, I don't know, incompetent? 
for the next two years, that was the predominant state of mind that I was in. I would wake up terrified at night. In the middle of the, middle of the night. Earlier this week, I ran across some thoughts I journaled in that season. You want raw? I wrote under the heading of incompetent. After years of what I felt was successful ministry, I feel horribly ashamed that I blew this up and now I feel useless. I feel like damaged goods. Now, look at a phrase in there. After years of what I felt like was successful ministry. Somebody speaking that and in conjunction with my failure convinced me that nothing we had ever done had worked. I now took that idea of incompetence and didn't just apply it to my situation or look at it in the future. I applied it to 30 years of ministry. And I convinced myself that everything we'd ever done was a bust. Now, I had not done everything right in that incident or in any incident for that matter, but I'd never failed so publicly and it almost didn't matter if it was my failure, if it was my fault or not, couched in that word incompetent. It made me wonder if we'd ever done any good at all. And shame crept in. I didn't want to see anybody. I didn't want to talk to anybody. And because the shame that I felt that I was projecting onto that situation and the future, because once you're incompetent, you're probably always going to be, and the past, because once you're incompetent, you probably always have been, it was dark. Now, that shame was not logical. We had not failed our entire lives. We could point to decades of ministry that had been fruitful. It was illogical. It was also not healthy. It, it got me in a grip for a long time. But it wasn't just illogical and unhealthy. It was unbiblical. Because even though part of that failure was mine, and maybe some of the accusation was true, Jesus has a way of responding to our failure differently than we do. During his time walking on earth, he surrounded himself with failures, and he got to pick the guys. Can you imagine? He gets to recruit people for his internship, and he picks people that he knows will fail. John 17, 38 and 39, Peter, passionate Simon Peter, makes this pledge to him. He says, Peter says to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. you. Lord, take me with you. Where are we going? I'll die for you. Talk about a pledge. Jesus, I'll go anywhere and they'll have to kill me to stop me from following you closely. And if they kill me, they kill you, they're going to have to do the same thing to me. He was signing up for faithfulness unto martyrdom. If there was a bigger commitment, he would have made that one. But there wasn't. Jesus answered him, verse 38, Will you lay down your life for me? He had just said that he would. <laughs> it's like, Jesus, I feel like you're not listening. I just told you I'd lay down my life. Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. Like, Peter cute, but failures on your future. In fact, before the night's up, in the morning, you're going to hear a rooster and you will have failed three times by then. He's saying, Simon Peter, your mouth is writing checks your spirit cannot cash. 
and you probably mean it, but you're incompetent. And failure is where this is going. And yet, even in light of Peter's failure, because it all happens, of course, just as Jesus speaks over him, in the middle of all that, Jesus still looks at Simon Peter and sees that he has a future, even knowing he's legitimately a failure. Because of that, Jesus went to great lengths to remove not only guilt, but shame from Peter. Much is made of the fact that he tells him three times, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Yes, three times. He does it as many times as he fails. He goes to great lengths to remove shame from them. But then he goes on to say in John 21, 18 and 19, to Peter, the one who said, I'd die for you, and then failed. He says, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And he said this to show him what kind of death he was to glorify God. After saying this, he said, follow me. He said, Peter, I know you failed, but come follow me. You're actually, I'm telling you, you're going to follow me unto death. You're actually going to live out that promise that you made. When the storybook is written, you will not be a failure. This history of Christianity and of the apostles will be one that Peter followed him unto death. He said, by my grace, you're not a failure. You just failed. But you're not a failure. And you don't need to live under that shame of the thing that you actually did. You actually did. Like you, did you said you were and you did it. But you know what? I'm going to work my grace in your life so that you are a success and not a failure. And you're not going to live under this shame of failing. The failures of your past, even legitimate ones, are not your prescription for the future. If you struggle with your failure, to be fair, sometimes you're the only one who does. Nobody else even thinks about it. But other times, it's a general consensus. Correct. You failed. If you struggle with it, fair or otherwise, in either circumstance, shame is not what the Lord has for you. And he wants to remove the shame of the failure in your past. So it comes upon us from our sin. It comes upon us from our failure. And shame also comes upon us from what happened to us. When we encounter shame for things that we had nothing to do, but actually happened to us. In fact, I would say that a bulk of the shame that some of you feel is because of something someone did to you rather than something that you did super hard because you can't control the world. Some of you are trying. It's just not working. Some of you live in great shame, not because of what you did, but because of how you were victimized. There's this really dark story about David's kids in the Bible, where a son named Amnar was so filled with lust towards his half-sister that he prepares to force himself on her. 2 Samuel 13, 12 and 13 says, But she answered him, No, my brother, do not force yourself on me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not, she's pleading with him, don't do this disgraceful thing. Then she says, And I, where could I take my shame? If you do this to me, how am I supposed to live with the shame? Has she done anything wrong? She's done nothing wrong. She hasn't failed. No sin, no failure in her life. But he's getting ready to do something to her. And she says, if you do this to me, how am I supposed to stand before people? And when it's over, it wasn't over for her. 
Scripture goes on to say, verse 15, When it's over, Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love, or the lust, with which he had for her. And Amnon said to her, Arise and be gone. Let me just say, abuse is not out-of-control love. That's not what that is. It's lust, which is always about power and shame. And he heaps shame on her after the fact. She pleads with him, what am I supposed to do with my shame? He takes her anyway, then he, then he hates her and he says, get out. Verse 16, so she said to him, no indeed, this evil of sending me away is worse than what you did to me. But he would not listen to her. Then he called his servant who attended to her and said, here, put this woman out away from me and bolt the door. What went through her mind in the years to follow? as she reflected on that event. I'm sure at times she thought, could I have done something different that could have avoided that? Was, that? was that me? Did I put myself in a position where that should have happened? If your past is one, like many others, that contains physical or verbal or sexual abuse, some of you have wondered, was that my fault? Did I put myself in a bad spot? The enemy is using that to heap shame on you for something. Listen to me. You had no responsibility for that. That was them. That wasn't you. That was them. They may no longer be laying a hand on you, but it is still causing you pain. Let me just clear up a couple of things on how the Lord sees what happened to you. God never condones abuse. Never. Psalm 11.5 says, The Lord tests the righteous... And his soul hates the wicked and the ones who use violence. That parent, that person that you loved, that stranger who caused violence on you, that was not God's plan for your life. That was not the Lord teaching you a lesson. That was someone else's sin that fell upon you. you you've got to think about that. Because too many of you are living with the idea that, I, did I cause this? No, no, no. Even if you provoked a person, sin is not okay and abuse is not okay. Some of you look back at your parents and maybe they were physically abusive with you. And you look back and you think, yeah, well, there, there were times maybe, maybe I caused it. No, no. Ephesians 4, 26 says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let somebody, they lost no allowance for a parent or a, a stranger or someone you love to go off and hurt you because they were provoked. That's not allowed. Finally, it is right and it is righteous to bring abusers to justice. Turn the other cheek is a whole different deal. We've talked about that in other contexts. If you have been abused, it is right and righteous for you to seek justice. The church as a whole has a bad track record about covering abuse under the guise of protecting. Protecting who? Yes, if someone has hurt someone, there is grace for them. There's also justice for the one who was hurt. Micah 6, 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice to love kindness, 
to walk humbly with your God. The command for us is actually to do justice and to bring people to justice. Justice there is not passive. It's not sitting around waiting for it. It's pursuing it. Some of you are under great shame because of something someone did to you. And I'm telling you, there's freedom from it. And it wasn't God's plan, and you didn't cause it. The fourth direction that shame comes to us is from shame from what is spoken over you. Some of you live under great shame because of words that were spoken over you that nobody laid a hand on you. You never thought of it as abusive because, well, there's no marks. Marks are on the inside. And things that were incredibly hurtful were said to you over and over, and you've internalized them. Some of you have lived under a cloud for decades for things that were said in your presence. It is strange how positive comments touch us, but then kind of drift off into the ethernet. But negative comments get under the skin and stick. And some of you are living with those barbs that are still stuck in you. I was, prepared, I was telling somebody this week, when I was preparing for this message, there was a number of times where I had to just get up and walk away from the keyboard. Like, because things start coming to mind that are coming to mind in you, in you right now. Things that were said, little words, little phrases that were said when you were young. I remember things that were said to me in high school by somebody who I barely even knew, but they it was like a knife and it turned. And I can look back and I could take you to the spot where it happened. I'm 56 years old. It might be the only thing I remember from high school. But I remember that. Some of you are thinking of those things right now. Maybe they were people that were more important than random people in your high school. Maybe they were classmates or parents or grandparents or teachers and they called you stupid or worthless. You're like, but I work hard. You do work hard, and you're not stupid. Even if you do stupid things, you're not stupid. You have value, but those are the things that stick in your mind. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. You know that. Why do you know that? Because they're barbs of death that have been spoken into you, and they've stuck. And you deal with shame. The shame that many of us carry comes from believing those death words that were spoken of us with more fervency than we believe the words of life that Jesus spoke over us. It is time for us to break agreement with the words of the devil and whoever spoke them and lean into the words of Jesus over our lives and say, we're 50, 60 years old. We don't need to live in shame anymore. None of that is true. Even if we're guilty of of sin, but we've been forgiven, that shame should not come on us. Even if we failed, that shame's got to go. Even if someone did something to us, we've got to recognize that was on them, that wasn't on us. We don't need to live under shame. Even for those words that were spoken, that have formed who you are. Some of the darkest things that were spoken to me in those early years, I'm embarrassed to admit, make up part of who I am today. And the Lord says that is not his plan for us. 
I want to ask if the worship team would come up as they do. Some years ago, I had a friend give me a challenge coin from the Air Force Academy. And I remember when they gave it to me because the, the, the conversation went from just kind of goofing around to very serious very quickly. They said, I, I don't know why I'm supposed to give this to you other than the fact that when I read it, I think of you. And the words on the coin are integrity first, service before self, and excellence in all we do. And he said, when I think of Randy, when I see this coin, I think, this is how I think of you. I didn't think of myself that way. And I've stared at it. And there are times when those barbs come and re remind me of things that were spoken of me, and I literally pull this thing out of my backpack. And I look at it, and I say, at least at some point, somebody believed integrity first. Somebody believed that I was about service over self. Somebody believed in excellence and all we... And God... I don't even know if I believe this right now, but somebody did at one point, and so I'm going to align my faith with what's this thing that somebody gave me rather than these barbs that people put in my back. In order to move past shame, we've got to focus on what our maker says about us more than the things that were said about us or that we've even said about ourselves. Stand with me for a moment. I want to ask you to bow your heads for a moment. With your heads bowed, I want to just for a moment reflect on that which causes you shame. Some of you have never even thought to call it shame until today. Some of you thought that the feelings that you are feeling about an incident or a time in your life are actually things that you deserve. And maybe for the first time you're realizing this is not God's plan for me. I want to make some statements over you that the Lord himself says over you because these are the things you've got to hear. And this morning, maybe you have recognized that you're walking in some element of shame. Maybe it's something you did. Maybe it's something somebody did to you. Maybe it's something, a lie that you believed. But when you think of revealing yourself to somebody else fully, you hold back because you can't imagine because at the very core, you do not feel like you are worthy of love. The Lord says you are worthy of love. He says, I gave you my son. I allowed my son to die on your behalf because you were worth it. And the word of the Lord over you this morning is that you are a son or you are a daughter. The word of the Lord over you is that you are forgiven for what you have done. The word of the Lord over you from Scripture is that you are the salt of the earth. The word of the Lord over you is that you, you, will reign in heavenly places that you are chosen 
that you were made for a good purpose. The word of the Lord over you is that you are evidence of Christ on earth to a fallen world. There's a prophecy in Isaiah where it says, instead of your shame, there will be a double portion. So right now, I ask, Father, that you would visit those that struggle with shame and hurt from that which has gone on with a double portion of grace and forgiveness and blessing on their life. Lord, we lean into the forgiveness that you have given. Our guilt is gone, and we command our shame to go with it. For the things that have been done to us, God, we command it to go. For our failure, even where it's legitimate failure, we break that off and we stand in freedom, in alignment with who you say that we are. 